Welcome everybody uh, to Wayside Bible Chapel. Uh, we'll be going through Psalm 119, uh, verses 41 to 48 today. But uh, before we start, uh, we'll pray real quick or slowly. Um, so take my time. All right, I guess we're going to intercede for everybody then. <laughs> Turn it into a two-hour prayer meeting. See who shows up next Sunday. I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for this day and your word. How precious is your word, because without it, we would be lost. It reveals to us who you are and how you have worked in your creation to redeem it back to you to redeem us from the pit and to bring us into your glorious presence, Lord. So help us to meditate on your word, uh, to allow it to change us, to be a part of us, to teach us through your spirit. We have no other teacher but your spirit to guide and direct us to your truth, the truth. So we thank you for your word and most importantly that it reveals to us your son who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'll be going through um, Psalm uh, 119, and uh, let me get my notes. Uh, for, for, I guess, being younger, I'm old school. I can't stand typing and using the computer, so I write in about 10. Is it about 10 point, Dave? Yeah, that, I can write in that. Yeah. Try reading that. <laughs> yeah. So bef uh, we'll just go over it real quick. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my whole... Oh yeah, could you please stand up? Sorry, I forgot that last time. Uh, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever and I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. And I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Uh, amen. This is God's word. You can sit down. So the... Um, as I've been going through this psalm, the funny thing is, uh, as I've been preparing messages on it, if you read through it, it looks very repetitive. But if you study and meditate on it, it is far from that. Every passage I go through, it tends to get deeper and deeper, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> I never saw that. Because there's a difference between committing to memory and meditating on the word. But in the last passage, in the last eight verses, 
we saw the psalmist's wholehearted devotion to God and inability to do it, to incline his heart from to your testimonies, not to selfish gain, to divert his eyes from looking at worthless things, to teach him the way of the statutes, to give him understanding, to lead him in the path of commandments so you see the progression. And then the last part, which I like the best, which opens up this next verse. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life, which is verse 40. And uh, this one opens up in verse 41 with, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation, according to your promise. So if you look at the context of the last verse you, can, verse, you can understand why he opens up with this. The beginning of our passage today starts with a plea to God for an unfailing kind of love that can only be attributed to the unfailing love of God based upon his faithfulness to his covenant. Exodus 15, 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The steadfast love of God here mentioned brings about the promise of his salvation. The interesting thing about the salvation mentioned here is it is spiritual, not physical, because the verse I just quoted was what? physical salvation but what did it represent for us spiritual salvation when you look back looking forward it represented spiritual so um, but anyways in the sense uh, the salvation mentioned here is spiritual in the sense of the act of delivering from sin and or saving from evil because what else happened in Exodus 15 13 the Passover lamb it's a combination of both there but here it specifically talks about spiritual salvation the psalmist is trusting in a spiritual deliverance and is more concerned with the eternal and unseen Psalm 40.10, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This salvation takes root in steadfast love and is anchored in the promise of God. In the future tense, and is mentioned Nine out of the ten times as it appears in the Old Testament text in this psalm alone. So 90% of this is only in Psalm 119 out of the whole Old Testaments in reference to this word. This is something to think about. He was looking forward to a spiritual salvation. Something tells me the writer understood a little bit more than what we think he understood. I guess you could say he had uh, some help from a great teacher. But 
And it's a prayer to keep in mind too. And may our prayers always cultivate hope in the steadfast love and salvation of God. These are certainly things we can meditate on as we try to comprehend the richness of the word of God and the God of the word. We don't want to separate neither. Verse 42. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. If you guys remember from a couple passages ago, he is being treated with contempt by the princes. What are the princes? It's not the king, but it's the king's kids. His contemporaries, those in power or who will be in power over him. The psalmist knows he will be treated with contempt and is being treated with contempt and plotted against by princes, yet he will answer. His answer will come from the word of God. And we have pretty, plenty of good examples in the Bible of answering with scripture. What's the biggest example we have? I'll give you a clue. He's in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. Usually he says, it is written. When he's being mocked or persecuted or if he has to bring correction, it is written, you say, but I say. Now, of course, he's the only one who can do that because he is the word incarnate. Our Savior Jesus gave us the ultimate example of this throughout the Gospels with the temptation in Matthew 4. Respond to the Pharisees, Mark 7. Now keep in mind, these are in the other Gospels as well too because they're all synoptic besides uh, John. And even quotes Psalm 22 in his last hours while being crucified. Now if you want to understand the context of him quoting Psalm 22... Read the end of it. It's pretty good. Because all we look at is the first part. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But verses 30 and 31 are pretty good. May we be so filled with the word of God that we are able to follow his example and being able to answer our mockers with the truth of the word of God unashamedly. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight. The heart of a righteous, righteous person ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The psalmist believes and has faith in the word of God. I trust in your word. That's what he says at the end. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. He trusts the word of God because he knows the God of the word. We can trust in God's power and strength, which has no limit. We can trust in God's unfailing love, which never fails and casts out all fear. We can definitely trust in his salvation, which he wrought through the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can trust in his word, which has never failed and is the sum of all truth. 
If it's truth, you can trust it. Has anybody ever trust somebody who's deliberately lied or tried to deceive them? Kind of hard to trust a person like that. There is no deceit or lies in God's word. It is the truth. It is where we get our standard of truth from. Nothing else. This multifaceted trust in God brings various things, praise and worship, and it strengthens and preserves our faith, our faith as we hold on to the promises of God. Because how else is faith exercised when you hope in a promise? You don't exercise faith without hope and promise. They go together. Proverbs 16.20 Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Trust in God produces perfect peace, security, and freedom from fear. Those are the results. It's kind of hard to say that in the world today if you look at the world around us. What is it governed by? Chaos, insecurity, uncertainty, slavery, and a lot of fear. All you have to do is watch the news. quick uh, survey watching the news does that produce peace in anyone are you saying wow this is such a great 30 minutes of good news does it produce security in you oh wow I feel so secure after watching this when they said everything's falling apart does it produce freedom are you like wow I sure am free after watching that very encouraging And does it produce fear? Typically it does. I don't think most people who watch the news ever go go away without some form of anxiety. How about when you read the word of God and trust in God? What does that produce? What are the results? And if we can, we'll go to the Augustine quote. Such is the depth of the Christian scriptures that even if I were attempting to study them and nothing else from early boyhood to decrepit old age, with the utmost leisure, the most unwearied zeal and talents greater than I have, I would be still daily making progress in in discovering their treasures. Augustine of Hippo. So I always say you can go deeper. It's uh, shallow enough for a kid to wade through it and so deep that you can't plumb the depths of it. Depends on where you want to go or allow God to lead you and devote one of our most precious commodities, which is time. 
It shouldn't be because we're going to eternity. This life is but a vapor, right? <laughs> it's short. So why not invest in eternity? Invest in eternity. Verse 43, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. The psalmist now asks God to sanctify his mouth. You remember before, it was his heart, it was his eyes, it was his feet, it was his mind, teach me. Now it's his mouth, and isn't that the hardest one? I guess it depends on your background, but uh, I think anybody who's worked in a, a construction might know, <laughs> or, or a job with a whole bunch of uh, men that aren't born again. But once again, the psalmist now asks God to sanctify his mouth and allow him to speak the truth of the word of God. His desire is that his speech would be conformed to the dependable reality or actuality of the word of truth. Do you hear that? It's the word of God that makes the reality. The word of God is the reality because he's the creator. Outside of that, it's all fantasy or delusion. And we're seeing a lot of that today from straying from the word of God. And it's a very steep progression to where I think most of us are saying, wow, I've seen it start like that, but I never thought it would end up like this. God's word is a solid foundation founded upon a steadfast, unchanging bedrock of truth that cannot be moved or shaken. Is our only source of truth by which we perceive reality concretely expressed in the word of God? Or has the foundation been compromised by mixing in the impurity of worldly wisdom apart from the word of God? The psalmist's hope in which he looks forward to the arrival of truth is founded upon God's authoritative rule expressed in his word. We have hope in his word because like him, it is unchanging. This hope brings the utmost security and wavering confidence in the believer to trust Almighty God. And that's what the hope in here, it's a future tense. Doesn't that make sense? Do you ever hope in the past? No, then it wouldn't be hope. Hope is for the future. So then you ask, what is our future? It's pretty good in light of eternity. In fact, it's supremely good, and I don't think we will... We, we can comprehend it right now. Because the more we try to comprehend it, the more we get blown away by the awesomeness of it. Psalm 119.60, the sum of your word is truth and all your righteous rules endure forever. First John 3.3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. So what does the hope do for us? It purifies us. So it's not just something empty that we just look forward to. It does something here and now. It does a lot more than that. Hope cultivates faith, steadfastness, perseverance. What happens when you lose hope? You give up. What happens when you give up hope? You become hopeless. Verses 44 and 45. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. With this amount of trust and hope in the, word, in the God of the word, how could the psalmist do nothing less than commit himself perpetually to God with an eternal oath? I will keep your law continually forever and ever. It's not a, I'll, I'll follow you for 20 years and if things get bad. This is a solemn oath of forever, no matter what. After all, we will either be either in the presence of the goodness of God for all eternity or separated from the the I'm sorry, or separated from him and subject to his terrible wrath for all eternity. God is not a God of compromise and neither should we compromise our commitment to him. Verse 45, and I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. It's kind of interesting that when I was meditating on this before I studied it, I thought, man, wide place sure sounds like freedom and security. <laughs> That's exactly what it means. <laughs> and not compromising his commitment, the psalmist knows in faith that God will direct his steps to the vast spacious place of the plan, purpose, and will of God for him that guarantees safety in eternity and freedom from his present sin. That's what a wide place represents. Have, have any of you tried to uh, walk a, a very rough trail that's narrow? Can you go to the right or left? No. If you take the wrong turn, you might fall down a mountain. <laughs> But when we commit wholeheartedly to God, he gives us a wide place. That's freedom. That's spacious. It's vast. It's the total opposite of what the world says, right? Not so with God. Many walk in this world claiming to be free while shackled in bondage to their sin with its immediate and eternal consequences. There is no hope in those because the only thing that matters is the now in this world and nothing in eternity. It's just however long you're going to be here that matters. How do you hope in death? If death is the end game, how do you hope in that? You don't. All you're living for is this life and what happens when you die. 
Well, if you amass a lot of uh, possessions, most likely it'll be given to your kids who will sell half of it and maybe keep a couple of sentimental things. So everything you worked for ends up getting sold. Well, 50%, depending on your kids. And 200 years from now, it'll probably be gone anyways, depending on what it is. In seeking God, there is sweet freedom. Now, and one of my favorite verses, and uh, Chip almost quoted it, or got close to it in the call to worship. I, I think he did. Second uh, Corinthians 3.17. So how do we have that freedom? Do we just assume we have it, or does something have to happen? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So there's a really big clue on if, A, you're being filled with the Spirit and being obedient to the Spirit. Is there freedom? Because where the Spirit is, there is freedom. You can't separate them. You can't be like, yeah, I got the Spirit, but I'm in utter bondage. You need to do a solemn search of heart about your commitment and whether it was a solid commitment, an eternal commitment, a change of heart. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. So I like this. If you see the progression, he's talking, first he talks about people who would mock him, then he talks about princes. Now he's going to the father of the prince, the king. Do you see how he's progressing upwards in the psalm? I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Well, obviously, if he shall not be put to shame, I don't think he's saying something that the king is going to like. And what would the king not like? The testimonies of God. Because most likely it's a godless king. The psalmist is not afraid to declare emphatically and authoritatively the covenant of God to those in authority over him. This is because he recognizes that God is the ultimate authority that supersedes all earthly authority. In fact, God instituted those kings. This gives him the ability to be bold without compromise to the truth. Therefore, he need not feel shame. And we have many examples. Think of the boldness of the prophets in the Old Testament declaring the testimonies of God to kings, the nations of Israel, and even foreign kings and cities. That's boldness. Because you, you know what happened back then if you went in front of a king and he didn't like what you had to say? In fact, a couple of them did die. <laughs> A couple of them did uh, get put in pits. Uh, they still had the boldness, though. Think of the boldness of Peter and John in Acts 4 and how people recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were amazed at their boldness, and they learned, and then they realized 
They had been with Jesus. Now, why would that be so significant? Well, first off, Jesus was a lamb, but he was also a lion. He had a lot of boldness. Think about that for a minute. They saw the same boldness of Jesus in them because who was Jesus bold uh, towards? The ruling authorities. Even when he was before Pontius Pilate, what did he say to him? You have no authority over me. Could you imagine saying that to a Roman authority being a Jew? That's a death sentence. Well, he already knew what he was going to do. Think of the boldness of Paul to speak to King Agrippa in Acts 26 and to seek an audience with the sovereign of Rome, knowing that he was going to die in the process. That's boldness. It's not boldness to say, well, maybe I might get mocked. It's boldness to say, I could die for this. And you'll see that all throughout the early church and even the persecuted church here today in the world. Because the prophets looked forward to Jesus and the apostles had been with and seen Jesus, how could their great hope as ministers of the new covenant not compel them to speak with boldness and simplicity? They didn't make it complicated. They didn't say, well, yeah, you know, uh, that sin you're doing, it's like number five, but not too bad. No, they said, you need to repent. And we have the means for, the, for where you can receive forgiveness for your repentance. And uh, if we could open up the Richard uh, Baxter quote. Truth overcomes prejudice by mere light of evidence, and there's no better way to make a good cause prevail than to make it as plain and commonly and thoroughly known as we can. And it is this light that will dispose an unprepared mind. At best, it is a sign that he who has not well digested the matter himself, who is, is not able to deliver it plainly, to another. Simple rule I learned, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't know it. And if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you probably haven't digested it. That means you didn't meditate on it and chew on it. And then we'll go to verse 47. I forgot to turn my page but I haven't memorized. <laughs> For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. So we'll think about the word, I find my delight. Delight is a sense of joy and pleasure experienced, especially through achievements or relationships. So what does he find his delight in? The commandments. Well, well, everyone might say, oh, you're, you're talking about the law. Well, what's the sum of the law? The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall 
Love the Lord your God with what? Heart, mind, soul, strength, and so how could you not take delight in love? Isn't that the purest emotion and most wholesome emotion we can exhibit? And it comes from the heart of God, but it comes first and foremost from love in God. So we delight ourselves in the person, person of God. That's something to meditate on. Who is God? Look at his different character attributes. Think of his crown and character attributes. Those are the best ones to meditate on. We delight in the word of God. How could we not delight in the word of God? We delight in the works of God because all his works are good. But then we even can see that God delights in his work and over his people because how was it how was what he created to begin with good? Because the good God said it was good. But what did he say about us? Like Chip was saying. Really good. I bet in Hebrew it's probably good good. That means perfect. <laughs> At least it was. <laughs> but then what does this delight cultivate in the heart when we delight in his word? Same thing as all the other stuff. It draws us closer to him. It, it gives us gratitude, gratefulness, appreciation, obedience. I mean, who doesn't want to obey something they delight in? Kind of like uh, kids with parents and wives with husbands. If you really love them, you delight in them and you delight to serve each other not thinking about yourself but the other one then we go to verse 48 I will lift up my hands towards your commandments which I love and I will meditate on your statutes meditation I think in the past 20 or 30 years actually maybe 40 years since the 60s and 70s in Christian churches has been very convoluted. It's been tainted with Eastern mysticism. And what I mean specifically is Hinduism and Buddhism. Like, for example, most people might think Americans who even been exposed to the gospel and might say they are Christian, maybe to no fault of their own, or their own ignorance, hopefully it's not willing. But I would say it's willing if they're not reading the Word of God because it tells you to meditate on the Word of God. 
anyways. We attribute it to the emptying of self. And my first question is, where does it say that in the Word of God? Does it? Does it say, empty yourself before me? No, on the contrary, it says, meditate on me. Meditate on my word. Meditate on my statutes. Meditate on my commandments. It says the exact opposite. So that's a correction that I think the church needs. And to meditate is to reflect, reflect deeply on a subject. Do you hear that? That's what the Hebrew word means, to reflect, reflect deeply. Does it say to empty oneself of everything? No, it says to reflect deeply on a subject. And what is that subject? The Word of God. And it says, I, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. Well, uh, what does lifting up hands mean? Is that worship? I, I worship them? I don't think we worship the commandments. We worship the one who spoke them, right? But it's interesting in, uh, I think it's, uh, I don't have the reference. I'll see if I remember the address, 2 Timothy 2.8 or 3.8. I desire that men everywhere would pray with holy hands lifted up. But the lifting up of hands can either mean to exalt, maintain, have a longing for, or prayer. So that's what we lift up our hands towards. We don't lift our hands up towards anything else, pray towards anything else. We have a book full of prayer right here. In fact, the Psalms are nothing but prayers. Everybody always uh, typically goes to the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, not realizing you have the biggest book in the Bible that is nothing but prayer. Psalm uh, 145.5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. That's just one verse. There's plenty of verses about meditation in here. Meditate on the splendor of his majesty and on his wondrous works. So the things we can meditate upon, just like the same things we look at in scripture, are the person of God, God's word, the works of God, creation. That's pretty cool to do around here because you, uh, you, you look at these mountains and realize to God they're nothing. <laughs> you know, and he just spoke them into existence and they're microscopic and we feel like we're microscopic to them. And his splendor and majesty outshines his creation all it is is a dim reflection at most. What are the results of meditation? Obedience, understanding, and wisdom. That's a big one. 
understanding and wisdom. Praise and worship, delight in the Lord in confidence in faith. And if we could uh, go to, so I, I think that's very key because I, I, I found in my devotion life that I would just do my duty and read the word of God. Yeah, sure, I could plow through two or three chapters in five or 10 minutes in the morning. But then by the end of the day, somebody could ask me, so what did you read? Oh, I, I don't remember. I plowed through it. But when I meditate on it, not only does it stick with me to the end of the day, but for the next couple of days, and then I never forget it. And when I never forget it, it changes, and it gets much deeper. So if we could, uh, the uh, quote from Thomas Brooks, Remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that makes them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not that he reads, it is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Thomas Brooks makes me think of uh, John Bunyan, not to be mixed with Paul Bunyan. <laughs> uh, he was an itinerant. Everybody knows who he is, right? He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. I would encourage you to read it if you haven't. He spent years in prison for being an itinerant preacher that wasn't uh, endorsed by the Church of England. He never went to college or had a formal seminary education, but he meditated upon the word of God so much that Charles Haddon Spurgeon himself said, I wish I had what he had because when he speaks, all he speaks is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon called Bibline. He spoke nothing but Bible. <laughs> and we have a pretty great book to testify of. Yeah, he did. I don't think he just read his Bible. I think he meditated upon it. <laughs> so I, if we think about it, going through this passage, look at the different key words. Steadfast love, salvation, promise, trust, truth, hope, wide place, not be put to shame, delight, love, meditate. Take those with you. Think about them. Look at it. Because uh, I've read this psalm many times and committed most of it to memory, but barely have I started meditating on it to this depth. And I'm glad I committed it to memory first because that's when you can meditate on it, you know. Um, so, but it's a, it's a very encouraging, very encouraging. Uh, do we have one last song? Okay. <laughs>